0: Good morning, Story family. Hey, wherever you are right now, I'm so thankful. And on behalf of the whole team here at the Story, I'm so grateful that you're here. Because wherever you are, if you're tuning in to worship, you're here. And so whether you're watching on Facebook Live or YouTube or the story.church, there's hundreds of people uh, tuning into every service at 845, 945 and 1105. And so if you're here, not only you're here, but you're not alone here. So I'm grateful that we have this technology to do this even at a tough time like this. Hey, do me a favor. If you're watching on a platform that allows you to comment, I'd love for you to leave a comment on Facebook or uh, YouTube and let us know where you are today physically, like where you're tuning in from. We love to hear from you and other people that are tuning in love to hear from each other. So it really helps us feel more connected. Hey, also, I haven't mentioned this in a little while, but uh, look, uh, this has been a difficult season here at The Story, and uh, if you call The Story home, you know that 2020 was set to be our biggest year yet. We had all kinds of hopes and dreams for expansion during this year. We're learning some real lessons here about patience and perseverance, but I want to say thank you to all of you who have continued to support The Story's mission with your finances. And I know during difficult times, that can be a little... Harder to do, I get that for sure, but some of y'all have continued to come through for your church and we thank you. Um, We've been able to cut back on some expenses, but look, our giving is also way down this year as you might expect. And so your generosity means more than ever. If you haven't yet given to the story, but you support what we're about here, you can support all of our ministries online and otherwise by visiting thestory.church/donate. TheStory.Church/donate. We've made that process as safe and simple as we can, so we'd love for you to, to do that, and thank you in advance for supporting The Story in this way. It means the world. If you don't know me, I'm Pastor Eric here at The Story. You just heard from Pastor Giovanna, and it's uh, really an honor to welcome you. You can see the the set looks a little different today. I'm going to talk a little bit more about what this all is in just a second, but first I wanted to tell y'all that um, I am here at the story still. Even though I'm not on stage, people have been asking like, why don't you preach from the stage anymore like you used to? Or are you like in a different location? Is this a social distancing thing? Not exactly. We're all here in the same building. The band was right over there. I still don't know how they rock out like they do so early in the morning, but we're all here together live with you. And uh, and so what I wanted to do by moving over here was just to feel closer to you. And I learned that we were gonna be online for longer than we thought. This is week 18 of being online only. (laughs) And so I wanted to feel more of a connection with you. And I feel that more over here than up on the stage and stuff. So the the team set me up here pretty nice. Every series that I've done over here um, in terms of preaching, they've set me up with a thematic surrounding here. So just check this out. This is amazing. This is for our brand new series called Slow to Anger, making peace in the culture wars. So for five weeks, for five Sundays, We're going to be talking about the practical ways of making peace. Why are we spending five Sundays doing this? Well, I think it's because we are living in a world at war. We are living in a world at war on multiple fronts. We feel it, we internalize it, we go to bed with it at night, we wake up with it in the morning. It's weighing on us. Our shoulders feel a little heavier. It makes us a little angrier than we would normally be when the world feels like it's spinning out of control, especially when there's battles on multiple fronts. So the first most obvious battle we're all facing together is this coronavirus um, pandemic business that frankly... It doesn't make sense that it makes us angry necessarily, but anger is one of the outcomes I'm learning from myself and others I'm hearing from in a, in a pandemic situation like this. We're angry about our situation, but we don't really know what to do with that anger. So that makes it worse. Like when you're angry, but you don't know who to be angry at, that'll drive you crazy. And so we try to point our anger in all kinds of directions. None of them are fruitful, by the way, but we're angry. (laughs) And so who do we blame? Some of us blame Trump for the virus and the, the situation we've got in the States. Some of us blame, you know, evangelicals for this somehow. Some of us blame, you know, the media. Some of us blame... Uh Antifa. Some of us blame, you know, uh people that go to beach parties in the midst of a global pandemic. Others of us blame people that protest on the streets in the midst of a pandemic. Like we can point our anger in all sorts of ways. And in the short term, it makes us feel good. But what does it really accomplish? Nothing. What are we accomplishing with our anger? Nothing. It just compounds our rage. Doesn't do anything to quell it. And so we've got that fight going on in in our midst. The second front in this uh, cultural wartime we're in, I think, is this uh, racial division battle that has resurfaced, this war on racism. That's been there all along in the States, but it's resurfaced ever since the video of George Floyd's death. Um, it, It lit a tinderbox in America. America, in the weeks that followed, burned literally but also in our hearts like we were enraged in different ways all of us just felt enraged and the emotion was overwhelming and what do you do when you're angry about racism in america who do you blame where do you direct the anger it's righteous anger we should be mad about racism racism is inherent it is an inherent evil. The Bible says that anyone who has bias against someone based on their appearance or where they come from, that is a sin, including if it's because of the color of their skin. And so what do we do? Who do we blame about racism? Some of us, again, if you think coronavirus is Trump's fault, you also think racism is. It uh, uh, tends to be the case. And so you're mad at Trump about racism in America and for stoking that fire, maybe. Or other people, again, get mad at Christians, evangelicals for not doing more and for being segregated at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, as they say. Others are, you know, mad at white people in general. White people are the problem. White people need to change. White people are all racists and no one else is. And and that rage, while understandable on some level, I suppose, is not helpful on any level. And, and neither is the idea that, you know... I've heard people say like the Black Lives Matter organization, not the slogan, but the organization is the problem and the protests, the riots, et cetera, they're the problem. Everyone wants to point the finger somewhere else. Everyone wants to direct their rage externally because we don't know what else to do. But it's overwhelming and directing it at somebody else it rarely accomplishes anything. And so we're stuck with it, stuck feeling angry and outraged. And this battle has numerous other fronts. I don't really have a ton of time to go into. I'll just lift them off for you. There's, first of all, you know, there's the whole uh, political battle that's coming this year. Couldn't get any worse, right? Just wait. We have a presidential election in the second half of 2020. Trump versus Biden versus Kanye West, apparently. I really hope they get him to the debates. That'll make it interesting. Uh, I'm sure no one will get angry about the election this year. We've got a, a bigger conversation about our economic policy in the United States. Should we keep being capitalist or should we lean more socialist? And there's anger on both sides of that, of that conflict. We've got a historical debate going on. Should we let the statues stand as symbols of our heritage as a nation? Or should we topple the statues because those men were racists and slaveholders? That is a very real Conflict, we've got all these fronts, all these battle fronts happening externally, and that's not even to speak of the micro battles we're all fighting every day in our hearts and in our homes. And so we are naturally feeling threatened. Naturally, we are feeling afraid. Naturally, we are angry. The question is when tensions run this high, where is the answer? What do we do? Where do, we, where do we put it, right? What do we do with it? Most of us come like hardwired or we've been conditioned to respond to anger in one of two dramatic ways. The first dramatic way is to fight, to fight back, to get revenge, to enforce what we want. And the other way is to flee, right? It is to look the other way. It is to avoid. What we're gonna talk about for five weeks is the practical and spiritual way of Jesus that is exponentially better, more productive, and more rewarding. In the face of our rage, the way of Jesus is truly different. Matthew 5, verse 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. Peacemakers, that's a weird word. I think we we skip it because we think we know what it means, but we really don't. Everybody knows Jesus said this, but nobody really understands what he meant, or very few of us do. What's a peacemaker? We often hear peacemaker in what we think of as a peacekeeper. We think of the UN guys with the blue hats on and we think of somebody that keeps the peace, like the person in every family who just when tensions are rising around the Thanksgiving table because dad supports Trump and Junior is a Bernie bro, like she's like, who wants cake and ice cream? Like we think that's a peacemaker, that's a peacekeeper, and peacekeepers are sweethearts. They have their place, but what do we do when there's no peace to be kept? What do peacekeepers do? What are they worth to us when there is no peace at all? How can you keep something you don't have? And in the absence of peace, peace must be made. And so we who follow Jesus hold the secret to this, and we keep it from ourselves, and we keep it from the world, even though the world is burning and in need of this third and better way. What are peacemakers? John Wesley, who founded the Methodist movement, defined peacemakers this way. He said, peacemakers endeavor to calm the stormy spirits of men, to quiet their turbulent passions to soften the minds of contending parties and if possible, to reconcile them to each other. They use all innocent arts and employ all their strength, all the talents God has given them. Listen to this, as well as to preserve peace where it is, as to restore it where it is not. Peacemakers keep peace where it is, but they restore it where it is not how does that happen? It doesn't happen accidentally. There is a very intentional, deeply spiritual path toward peacemaking that we're going to talk about. Again, most of us think you make peace by fighting or fleeing through force or through avoidance. Jesus is going to give us a better way. Step one, every week we're going to give you a step uh, to take in this process, and every step is going to be accessible and easy so you can apply it to your life. Step one is pray first. Pray first. Take your anger to God, not people. Even if your anger is about people, not God. Sometimes we take anger to people about, to people, and then we take anger about God to God, or or sometimes we take anger about God to people and tell them what a bad God he is. Or sometimes when we're angry at people and we're the holy, righteous, religious ones, we'll take God to people because he's on our side and we'll feel real self-righteous and we'll accomplish nothing. But the way of Jesus starts with prayer. And I know this sounds cliched. No one's surprised to hear a pastor saying, pray first but it's deeply practical and entirely powerful when you understand the role prayer plays in peacemaking. There can be, and I don't think there has ever been real peace without prayer, no peace, no prayer. Whenever somebody comes to me and they're really struggling with feelings of resentment or anger because someone's hurt them, and in many cases that pain is so legitimate, someone's really done them wrong, I always wanna know, have you talked to God about the anger you feel toward this person? And they're always surprised and semi-offended. What do you mean, have I talked to God about my anger toward this person? They're the ones that need to pray, pastor. You're their pastor too. Can't you just excommunicate them or something? I heard you do this sometimes in the church. No, no, that's not what I'm here for. I wanna know, have you prayed to your God about the rage you feel toward them? Because if you haven't, there's really no place to go here. Prayer must come first, even if it's the hardest thing in the world we can think about doing. And the reason we know this, it's not just wishful thinking or making it up. It's Jesus who modeled this for us. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed. Now, what was going on when he prayed his most raw, honest prayer on record? Well, they were on their way to arrest him. Judas was leading soldiers to come and arrest him. And within hours, he would be put on trial. Within a day, he'd be dead, crucified. And so Jesus, when he was under all that pressure, when the world was burning around him and coming to get him, he faced the same choices many of us face, to fight or to flee. Jesus could have fought, believe me. Uh, He could have mounted a a counterattack He turned water into wine and brought dudes back from the dead. I'm pretty sure he could have handled Judas and a few soldiers, could have called down angels from heaven to attack him or whatever he wanted to do, but he didn't fight back. He didn't seek retribution or vengeance. He also didn't flee, but he could have. Listen, the the Judean wilderness was just over the Mount of Olives. It was less than two miles away and he could have disappeared into Judea, gone back to Galilee, become a construction worker again, maybe trim up his beard as a disguise. No one would have cared. No one would have ever come looking for him. If he never showed his face in Jerusalem again, they would have let him go, but he didn't run. He didn't fight. He didn't flee. What did he do? He prayed. In the hour, of his greatest tension and angst and pain and fear, he prayed. And he prayed for real. Father, I'm scared. Father, I don't want this. Father, they're coming for me. Father, is there another way? He spoke very honestly about his pain. And because he prayed when Judas and the soldiers showed up, he was able to face his enemies and his fears without fighting or fleeing. He faced it. And even though it hurt a little or a lot, within 12 hours, he was hanging on a cross and the soldiers who put him there, the Roman soldiers were saying to themselves, this guy's for real. He's really the son of God. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. The way of Jesus is so much better. But we get wrapped up in this world, don't we? with its endless cycle of anger, rage, punishment, resentment, cynicism. And the way of Jesus could free us if we let it. And it starts with prayer. No, <clears throat> that's the power of prayer in a world at war. Jesus gives us this example. It's not the only example in the Bible, however. The Old Testament has this awesome example of the power of prayer when we're angry. It's a story that you may or may not be super familiar with uh, because it's Old Testament, a little lesser known. The story of David and Saul. So I'll explain it real quick. This is from the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. Saul was the first king God ever appointed over Israel. Israel said, we want a king like other people have. And so God said, fine, I'll give you a king. God loved Saul, appointed Saul as king. Saul and God were tight. Saul got it. He did what God said. Because he did what God said, God gave him success in his kingdom. But as often happens with politicians and with the rest of us, if we're honest, when Saul experienced success, he started to think it was him that did it, not God. So he stopped listening. He stopped obeying. And God got frustrated with Saul and decided to appoint a new king to usurp Saul, to take Saul's place one day. And he chose a young man no one saw coming, David, right? Everybody knows about David more or less, but there's parts of David's life that I think very few of us know about. God didn't tell Saul, for example, that, that he appointed David as the next king. Instead, God called David to serve on Saul's staff. And Saul and David fell in love with each other. They, they loved each other and admired each other deeply. Right? So Saul respected David and vice versa. David killed Goliath and Saul was happy about it. Saul would get anxious. He would get upset. He was kind of a nervous guy. And and David would play him a song on his lyre, which was like a guitar in the old days, I guess, and, and calm him down. Soon enough, though, Saul's admiration of David turned into jealousy because comparison is the thief of joy as well as love. And as jealousy works on us, it always becomes rage. And so Saul became enraged at David because everybody loved him. Everybody loved David. David was young and charming and handsome. He was the greatest military tactician in all of Israel. People started singing songs about David instead of King Saul. And Saul did not like that one bit. As the armies of Israel went out to defend Israel against surrounding kingdoms and empires, they sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his 10,000s. And that stuff got to Saul quick. So Saul decided to kill David, to destroy him, to take him out. And he tried on several occasions to hurt David, to kill him. And the Bible records these. There's this one story I couldn't not share with you. So check this out this time that uh, Saul uh, tried to kill David. This is in 1 Samuel 19. This story is crazy. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window. He fled and escaped. And then Michael... (laughs) <laughs> she took an idol and laid it in the bed and covered it with a garment and put some goat's hair at the head. So Saul uh, sent men to capture David and Michael said, he's ill. And Saul sent the men back to see David and told him, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men entered, they saw that it was just an idol in the bed and at the head was some goat's hair. Saul said to Michael, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? David's wife pulled a Ferris Bueller on King Saul. I never knew that this trick was in the Bible, the old stuff something under the blankets trick, but there it was. Saul, on several occasions, tried to take David out. Now, maybe you've never had somebody try to try to take you out, <laughs> but I guarantee you, if you think about it, you've had someone who you felt like they wanted to destroy you. We want to hurt you. You can think about this, right? Maybe it's right now. Maybe it's going on now. Who knows? But you've had someone, we all have, have, had someone in our lives who would love to see us fall. And maybe they're actively working against us to destroy your reputation, your career, your good name, your marriage. You know, um, it's, it's, Not that far off for most of us. I think most of us can relate in some way. And what happens when someone comes after us like this? How do we respond? Well, I think most of us respond with outrage. When somebody comes after us, we we want to either fight them or flee them, but we feel rage. It's natural to feel. That way, um, and I think all of us can um, relate to that, but I want you to hear me telling you now because I love you and I want the best for you and I've seen what anger can do. When you think about who you're angry at, the people who are trying to destroy your name or your marriage, or maybe people you feel are trying to destroy your country even, like that anger can get in. What you do with that anger is a bigger deal than you think. What you do with that anger can and will determine your future. What you do with the anger inside of you now will chart your course for your life and maybe even for your soul if you're not careful. We have to learn how to, anger, how to handle our anger better. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. He said, be angry but do not sin. Interestingly, right? He gives us permission to be angry because being angry itself is not a sin. Sometimes we should be angry at sin, but if it goes on unchecked, if it festers inside of you without you realizing it, it itself becomes sin. And then he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil a foothold. That is to say that anger unchecked can leave your enemy, the devil, A foot in the door, an opportunity to attack you, to take you down. So do not let the sun go down on it. Deal with it now, all right? So how did David deal with his anger toward Saul? What do we see in David's response? What's funny is David could have taken Saul out twice. While Saul was hunting David, David was smarter than Saul because rage makes you stupid. I'm going to talk about that next week. Rage always makes you stupid. And Saul was enraged and his intellect was gone. David outsmarted him. And one time David stood over Saul's bed as he slept, sword in hand and didn't kill him. Another time, I'm not even making this up. Another time Saul was relieving himself in a cave and David was in the same cave, snuck up behind him close enough to cut off a piece of his robe, but chose not to take his life. Why? Why did David not take the chance to slaughter the one who sought to slaughter him? Why? Where did he find that restraint? He found it on his knees in prayer. And I'm not just making that up. We have documented evidence that David took his rage and anger towards Saul straight to God. It's in the Psalms. If you've never read them, They'll blow your mind. David wrote most of these Hebrew prayers and songs, and about a third of the ones that David wrote are all about his anger about Saul. David's always talking to God about Saul trying to come and kill him. And I think it's through that act of praying that David found the strength to not give Saul what Saul wanted to give him. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. This is from the 52nd psalm, all right? So listen to these words and picture David like on the run as Saul's chasing him. Picture David crying out to God about Saul. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? Why do you boast all day long, you who are disgrace in the eyes of God, you who practice deceit, Your tongue plots destruction. It's like a sharpened razor. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He'll snatch you up and pluck you from your tent. He'll uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear. They'll laugh at you saying, here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. David said that about Saul to God. And what that did for David is that because he had taken out all of his rage about Saul on God in prayer, by the time he was faced with Saul asleep in that bed or whatever in that cave, all David's rage was gone. It was spent. David had capacity for mercy because he had already spoken his rage to God. He gave it to God. Yo, this, I cannot even tell you what a game changer this would be if we were able to take all our rage about people to God first, so that by the time we were faced with these people, whether they're under our own roof, sometimes, you know, the people that hurt you the worst are those who are closest to you, like David and Saul. Imagine if by the time... They came home from work or home from school or whatever. And you saw them, you were faced with them. Your instinctive, impulsive rage was already spent on God. God already took it off your shoulders and you were able to show mercy to the ones who upset you. Imagine what a game changer that would be in your heart, in your home. And the same applies to people on TV that you think are your enemies and you're screaming at your TV. Try streaming to God about those people. And he'll show you a couple of things, actually. First of all, you'll see the futility of spending your rage on people. It never gets you anywhere. It's just a cycle. What happens when you do that? You get mad, you explode. uh, They feel guilty, they apologize, things are okay. And then they make you mad again and you explode again. They apologize again. And every time they do, you believe it a little less. And your anger soon becomes rage. Your rage becomes cynicism. Your cynicism becomes bitterness and bitterness always becomes death. Where is this cycle getting us? God has a better way. When you go to him in prayer, he will show you that instead of perpetuating that cycle of rage in your life here, understanding the bigger picture will open your eyes, will humble you, and it will make you a peacemaker. This is what I mean. This is Paul's words to the Ephesians. In chapter two of his letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul wrote this. He said, remember you who were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners, outsiders. You were without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And listen to this, for he himself, is our peace it's not just he has our peace or he will give you peace Jesus is our peace why he has made the two groups one destroying the barrier the dividing wall of hostility Paul goes on to say by the cross whose hostility me against Trump me against Antifa me against evangelicals me against my wife Me against my boss, me against whoever, no. The hostility Paul speaks of that God has destroyed is God's hostility at our sin. The holiness of God cannot abide our fallen sinful selves. But instead of punishing us, instead of coming out after us, instead of fleeing from us, he chose to reconcile himself to us through the cross And what you'll see when you pray to God first about the rage you feel inside is that the distance between you and God, when he bridged that divide, when he put to rest those hostilities, that distance is infinitely greater than the distance between you and whoever you're mad at. And so if God has forgiven you for what you've done, how could we not extend the same grace to those who've hurt us offended us, sought to destroy us. Grace is the way of peacemaking. Even when it hurts, even when it feels like a cross on your back, that's the way of Jesus. And even though it may be difficult even though it may hurt it's the only way to bring peace to quell the conflict to restore that which is broken imagine y'all what a difference could be made today if you chose to trust god with your anger if you chose to pray instead of to fight or to flee Pastor Gio mentioned that prayer resource that our team has worked on. It's beautiful timing. God's timing's awesome in this because it's a perfect way to start praying if you've never been a person of prayer. But imagine if you took all the rage you felt toward people and the TV and Twitter straight to God. What a difference that would make. Would you pray with me right now? God, thank you for being our peacemaker. Thank you, Father, for showing us a better way because our fighting and our fleeing, our aggression and our passive aggression, it's getting us nowhere. It's destroying us in our relationships. God, we wanna live and we wanna bring life wherever we go. Teach us to pray, to trust you with our anger so that we can be peacemakers in our homes, and in the world, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.